Great, it's great to be together this morning. I've been away for uh, a couple of weeks. I've been uh, on some study leave, been uh, down in Devon, been praying, reading, reading a number of books, doing a bit of uh, uh, preparation for a number of things, writing a couple of papers. Um, one of the books that I've been reading um, is called, uh, it's an old Puritan uh, uh, classic. It's written by a guy called Jeremiah Burroughs. It's called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, full of uh, some excellent nuggets. And uh, we're just going to touch a little bit about uh, some, of, uh, some of those, picking out one or two of those this morning. The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. It's a little bit like when you read Puritan books, it's sometimes it's a little like, have you ever seen the film Snakes on a Plane? Uh, the title tells you, tells you everything. There's snakes and there's a plane. That's, that's all you need to know. Sometimes Puritan writers, um, uh, they, they, uh, they're full of, they give you 20 reasons for all sorts of things. And after about 15, you forget to about the 15th, and the, you're starting to think, wasn't that the same as the point before? And wasn't, wasn't that the same as the point before that? But this is a really excellent book, uh, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contempt. It's a real challenge for us in the world we live in. Rob mentioned at the beginning of the meeting about the need uh, in this world for contempt. We're always looking for something. We're always looking for a little bit more. And this morning we come to the end of our little series on called Overflowing Joys. We've been working through the book of Philippians together, and it's been. I hope you've enjoyed it. I, I found it really encouraging, inspiring. There is a need in these days for joy. And Jesus said, "I give you my. I, I want you to have my joy in you." that you might know the joy of God in your life. Jesus wants that for us. And so we should be a people filled with joy. And so this morning, as we come to the end of this book on Philippians, we're going to be focusing on uh, 10 verses from the end of Philippians chapter 4. And uh, we're going to read those together. And uh, this is what they say. The words will come up behind me on the screen from the New International Version of the Bible. Let me read them to you. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you've been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry. Whether living in plenty or in want, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I'm looking for a gift, but I'm looking for what may be credited to your account. I've received full payment, and even more. I'm amply supplied now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Great passage. It's a really great passage. Our lives should be filled with joy. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, Joy has been the characteristic of the church in every period of reformation and revival. 
Do you think Christianity would ever turn the world upside down if it were as negative as people represent it? Of course not. What conquered the ancient world was this joy, this gladness, this verve, this indestructible quality in the life of these people. And this is the greatest need in the world today. It's the greatest need in the world today. These Philippians, these people that Paul was writing to, stand as a great example to churches, to Christians of every age, because of their incredible joy. Paul even referred to them when he wrote some other letters to other churches. He writes to the church in Corinth, and in his second letter to Corinthians chapter 8, he talks about the Macedonian churches, and Philippi was one of those Macedonian churches. And he talks about, out of their most severe trial, he talks about their overflowing joy, that it just welled up in rich generosity. Paul himself was marked by joy. As we read through his letters, we see a man who's in prison, uh, chained, and yet can talk about being filled with joy, being grateful to God, rejoicing in God in every circumstance. He is a remarkable character. And without doubt, his extraordinary joy that he'd received from God was a result, uh, left an indelible mark on the church in Philippi, which he'd planted. Paul is clear this joy is a result of the grace of God. It's something that God has done in his life. God is our source of joy. And for us to know this joy in our own lives and in Hope Church, we need grace from God. As I was thinking about a way of illustrating it, I'm going to use an illustration I've used before. And uh, I, was a, I, I did a geography degree in uh, Southampton University many years ago now. And uh, there are not many things I remember from my geography degree, but I do remember uh, I was interested in rivers. And uh, a river, as a river comes down from the mountains and it comes down to the plains, it's, it picks up speed through the mountains, but as it hits the plain and comes to the coastal plain, it starts to slow down, it's carrying a lot of material. And the river, as it hits a floodplain, it will start to, uh, and, and it will be looking for the easiest route. So as it cuts its way through the ground, through the uh, floodplain, if it hits a bit of hard rock, it, it goes in the other direction. And, it went, and because of the pace it's going, it tends to meander, it's called meandering across a floodplain. And if you see images of rivers that meander, and what happens is that the river, as it comes down, as it flows, eventually that bit of hard rock that caused it to push away and move in a slightly different direction, eventually the river cuts through it. And it bursts through and forces its way through. And as it does that, the bend in the river gets cut off. And the bend in the river, for those of you who are doing geography, it's called an oxbow lake. Remember that? Some of you remember that name, don't you? Oxbow lakes. And what happens over time is you see the river still, there's still bits of water going into what, is, uh, what was part of the river, the oxbow lake. But eventually, it gets silted up. 
And the issue isn't the water flowing in, it's that there's no outflow for it. And eventually, this oxbow lake, it, 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 it silts up, it becomes full of stagnant water, and eventually it disappears. And the river moves on. We can be part of what God is doing. God's spirit and grace is flowing through our lives. Too often, though, as God is, God is always doing new things. Sometimes we get a little stagnant. Sometimes we resist going the way God wants us to go. And, and sometimes we can find ourselves isolated from what is, God is doing. Just like a little like an oxbow lake can be separated from what God's doing. And over time, God's grace is still pouring into our life, but because there's no way of outworking it, we become very self-focused. It becomes all about us, all about me, all about how I feel. And slowly we stagnate. And slowly we get more and more isolated and distant from what God is doing. God wants his grace to flow through us every day. He says this, Jesus himself said this, freely you have received, freely give. The purpose of us receiving grace from God is that we are a conduit, we are a channel for God's grace to reach out to the world around us. It's not for us to just receive stuff ourselves, for us to hold on to it. And Paul is writing to these Philippians and he's trying to get them to understand such an important principle As they have received from God, grace from God, as their lives are marked with joy, it should be poured out and outworked in the community around them. There are keys Paul gives us to ensuring God's joy keeps flowing through our lives. And the first key is this. It's called deep contentment. Deep contentment. Paul is thanking the church for their generous gift. They've given him a gift. He was needy and they've sent him a gift. He wants them to know that without the gift, he wants them to understand that he was content in God. He's grateful for their gift, but he, doesn't, he wants them to know that he was completely content in God. He's still in prison. You see, Paul wants them to understand that contentment is based on the the truth that God is in control and his grace is sufficient for all our needs. The word word that Paul uses for content translates as self-sufficient. What he's saying is, I have everything I need. I'm at peace. I'm able to rejoice in every situation. It's based on truth. We heard a spiritual tongue this morning. And as we heard it, the the prayer was about how God is in control. He's on the throne, that he's uh, all-powerful. And when we understand that and we know that we are his children, we know that we're going to be okay, whatever our circumstances may be like, however tough things may get. Warren Wearsby says this, contentment is not escape from the battle, but rather an abiding peace and confidence in the midst of the battle. 
And Paul lived that out. So even after being beaten, thrown in the prison, chained, he's able to worship God. It's not stoicism. It's not stiff upper lip. This is vibrant, joy-filled Christianity because he knows the living God who created the heavens and the earth is on his side, whatever his circumstances look like. You see, in these few verses, Paul talks about deep contentment, and he tells us a couple of things. He tells us that it's something that's learned by experience. We learn it. He said, I've learned the secret of contentment. We need to learn to trust the sovereignty of God, that God is in control. control. We need to learn to trust that he is loving and kind despite what our circumstances may hint at. We need to learn that God is always at work in our lives and his timing is perfect. His ways are beyond tracing out. We need to Trust that when God is, things aren't happening in the way that we expect them to, that that God is shaping us. The Bible talks about it as the discipline of God. It's not a harsh thing, it's a wonderful thing. God, God so loves us, he doesn't want us to remain in the state that we're in. So he works on us and shapes us and changes us. It's contentment is something that we learn because it's based on who God is. It's learned, but it's also a heart attitude. You see, it's not dependent on circumstances. God wants us to be content whatever's happening around us. He wants us to be at peace and content in our hearts. It can be difficult to be content when we have lots of stuff, when we've been blessed with lots of good things in life, when life's going swimmingly, it's so easy to actually not be content and want more. We're always looking for more. We always want that little bit more than we have. Contentment is such a challenge when we're, life is going well for us, but it's also a challenge when life is not going so well. It's a heart attitude. I came across this quote from this old Puritan writer, Jeremiah Burroughs. Written in about 16, probably about 1620, 1630, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, he says this The devil loves to fish in troubled waters. The devil loves to fish in troubled waters. What's your state of your heart? Rob was talking at the end of the worship about people here about their heart. What's your heart like? Is your heart troubled? Is your heart unsettled? Are you full of rage and questions? God, why is that? That's not fair. What's going on? The devil loves to fish in troubled waters. God wants you to know contentment in your heart. Contentment's a heart attitude. But Paul also says it's based on a secret. It's based on a secret. It's an amazing secret. Last summer, uh, Annette and I uh, went to Burgundy. It was a friend of mine's 50th birthday, and he paid for us to go to Burgundy. It's great having friends that that do that. And uh, paid for us to go to Burgundy with him for a few days. We went on a a wine-tasting thing. I know nothing about wine, okay? Whenever I buy wine, it's the cheapest. uh, It's a price, 
and it's got to be about five or under. Okay? That's, that's the basis of, of choosing. But anyway, we go to Burgundy, and, and, you go to Burgundy and, and they have researched over centuries. They've got monks there who've researched over centuries where the best wine comes from. Which rows of grapes in Burgundy that the best wine comes from? I mean, what a job. You don't see them coming up very often, do you, in the sort of paper, come and be a, a, a monk being a wine taster. Doesn't happen. But they, they've, what they've worked out is that the best, the best Burgundy wines, the Grand Cru as it's called, that wine comes from the grapes that are on highest up the south facing, south uh, east uh, facing, southwest facing slopes. The higher, the, uh, the higher rows of grapes, they are the most, that's where the best wine comes from. The grapes that are grown, the vines at the bottom of the valley, they're closest to the water table. Their roots don't have to go down very far to hit water. But the, 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 the vines that are growing at the top of the slopes, their roots have to go down. Sometimes their roots have to go down 50 meters to reach water. And it's that digging down through rock and shale and through earth down to the, the water that's what causes the vine to pick up the minerals from the water and causes the best burgundy wines. The vine that is closest to the water table doesn't produce such good quality wine. It's, it's almost like the, it's too easy. There is a secret to contentment. It's not about it being easy. It's not about being close to the water table. It's about our roots going down deep into God. There is something that God does as our roots go down into him, as we look for him and trust him, when everything else seems to point the other way. When we honor him, there's something that God does in us that produces a sweet fruit of contentment. It's a secret. It's based on a secret. And this is it. Paul says it, sums it up like this. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. God wants you to know that contentment. You see, contentment is, is, is something, it's not something that we need to add to our lives to get. The world around us tells us that advertising around us says that if you have this, whatever it is, you will be, your life will be fulfilled. It will add something of real quality to your life. And it's also in our thinking, everything around us, the world around us is telling us if we have that little bit more, a bit more money, a bit more time, a bit more space, if we just were able to afford that, we would be content. It's a lie. I want to tell you, it is a lie because however much you have, you always want that little bit more. You always want that little bit more. I think it was Rockefeller who said this, how much is enough? He's a million. He said, it's always that little bit more than you've got. See, contentment isn't about adding, it's about subtraction. And this old Puritan, 400 years ago, concludes this. He says, Contentment is not an issue of addition, of adding something to where you're adding something to your circumstances to reach your aspirations, to fill the gap. 
He says, no, no, no. It's not a matter of addition. It's subtraction. It's reducing your aspirations down to the level of your circumstances. It's a secret. It's a heart attitude. Something that we learn. God wants us to be a people of deep contentment. As we are a people of deep contentment, his joy flows through our souls. The second key is this, rich generosity. Rich generosity. It may seem counterintuitive, but there's nothing like meanness of spirit to squeeze the joy of God out of our souls. I mean, the The New Testament has loads to say about what we do with our money, especially Jesus. He's the main culprit. And he seems to view what we do with our money as a barometer reading of our soul's condition. And you see, joy, when we really get joy, the joy of God, when God's grace is flowing through our lives, there is a rich generosity that is a response That's what we see with the Philippians. They oozed generosity. It gushed out when they were under pressure. It just poured out of them. Paul tells us that they gave again and again when he was in Thessalonica. He also refers to the ample gifts that they've just sent him through Epaphroditus. And it's brought him great joy because God was using them to provide for him. And if that weren't enough, the Philippians' giving was was the stuff of legend, So Paul writes to the Corinthians and he talks about the Macedonian churches and the church of Philippi Philippi was one of those. He says, out of their extreme poverty, out of their poverty and the pressure they were under, it resulted in rich generosity, he says. They were a generous people. They gave as much as they were able, we're told, and then they gave a bit more out of their poverty. They never seem to lose the joy of giving. The challenge is, is giving a duty for us or is it a joy? Does it ooze out of us at every opportunity, whether it be our time, whether it be our resources, whether it be our money, or are we a bit grumpy about it? Are we a grumpy giver? See, it's a hard issue. And when we look at these Philippians, what we see, we see some things. We see some little tests, if you like, little litmus tests about being generous, rich in generosity. The first thing is we see how they just backed Paul. They backed him. They loved God and they loved Paul. When they heard he had a need, they wanted to be part of the solution. They didn't ask prickly questions. I can imagine them. I've thought about this a bit, actually. I can imagine it would have been easy to go, Paul, we just, we just want to talk to you a little bit, actually. We, we feel a little, um, little concerned about your ministry. Wherever you go, you go to places, and you seem to go to the synagogue, and you, you, you just cause trouble. You, why don't you hold back a little bit? Because whatever, seems to, whatever you seem to say, you seem to get kicked out of the synagogue, And when you get kicked out of the synagogue, I mean, when you were in Ephesus, Paul, you ended up, you were kicked out of the synagogue and you have to hire the Hall of Tyrannus for two years. Now, how much did that cost? We think there's probably a better way of you operating. They didn't do any of that. They just got behind him and behind what he was doing. It's great to ask questions, okay? It's great to ask questions, 
But you ask, if you're asking questions when you've already decided what the answer is, it's not a good place to be. They trusted Paul and got behind him. They grasped every opportunity to back him up. No wonder Paul calls them partners in the gospel. They loved following him as he followed Jesus. What does our giving reflect? Followed their leaders. They were motivated. These guys were motivated. I don't know about you, eh? Uh, are you motivated to give? The Corinthians that Paul writes to, he reminds them about the Philippians and he says, they're motivated. I need to encourage you. You promised to do that. You promised to give some money to the church in Jerusalem. Now I need to remind you to do it. Paul had to remind them. They weren't motivated. The Philippians were uh, motivated. We had um, a little incident um, uh, a, a few, uh, probably about two months ago now, and um, uh, w- last summer we went to West Point, and at West Point they take up a big offering, and uh, one of the ways you can give in West Point is that you can, you can pledge, I'm going to give this sum of money. And then what uh, inevitably happens is that people forget, and so uh, what happens is at some point an email comes around to all those who went, and it says, just to remind you, blah, 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 if you made a pledge, blah, 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 blah. Now, most of the time, I, I, you realize, actually, it gets sent to everybody. But Jonathan, uh, it was his first time at West Point, and um, he, he said, came to me, he said, I've been really, he said, I've had a really sleepless night. He said, I got this email, and uh, he said, I, I just, uh, I was thinking, I don't remember pledging anything. Did, did I pledge? What did, did I pledge? I've had a really sleepless night, because if I've given my word, I want to I wanna do it. And um, I, and I, 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 I mean, I, I, everything within me wanted to say, yeah, I remember you saying, putting a 10 grand. <laughs> or was it 20? I can't remember. I mean, maybe some of you who were there can remember what Jonathan wrote on his. They were motivated. The Philippians were motivated. They had no such problems with motivation. We're told they'd be concerned for Paul, but they said they had no opportunity to do anything about it. They were concerned, but had no opportunity. Our problem is we have the opportunity, but we show no concern. There's a need. Our response should be what can we do? How can we help? Praying is crucial, but don't let it be an excuse for doing nothing. Giving is more than money, and we can give in all sorts of other ways, but sometimes we can hide behind that and say, oh, it's not about the money. Whenever we say that, it's always about the money, in my experience. Whenever I say that, it's not about the money. Inside, I need to remind myself, yeah, Steve, it's always about the money. Because money has such a hold over our lives. God doesn't want it to have that hold over our lives because he is our source. He wants us to learn to trust him. And the the other thing we see about the Philippians is that they they were motivated, but they were also committed. And we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 5, they were free to be generous because, first of all, they gave themselves. The issue was one of actually, God, we're giving ourselves to you. I don't know if you picked up in the worship in Craig's prayer at the end. He said, God, I want to give myself to you again. That's what these Philippians were doing. They were giving themselves to God. They gave themselves to God. They're saying, we are your people. We're the sheep of your pasture. You look after us. We have no worries about being generous because you are our source. 
And, and if we battle with this, we need to go back and focus again every day on the grace of God, how generous he's been to us. We deserve nothing. And he has been so kind, so gracious, so merciful. And as we remember his kindness and his grace towards us, it, should, it, will, it will, I tell you, it will stir you, it will provoke you to joy to rise in your soul and for you to just want to be generous. Because you realize how generous he's been to you. These Philippians, they were committed, but they were also active. They didn't just talk about it. Sometimes we're quick to say we're going to do something, but we never actually do it. We've learned with my daughter Meg, she lives in Swansea, and she, says, uh, uh, she said on lots of occasions, oh, I'll, I'll be coming home this weekend. What we've learned is that until she's actually bought the train ticket, we don't allow ourselves to go get excited about it. Because what happens is, We'll get all excited, and that will get real excited. Or Meg's coming home in two weeks' time, and, and then she say, "Oh yeah, no, no, I can't come." We wait till she's bought the ticket. Now, sometimes we can say we're going to do things, and we don't do it. Maybe, maybe that's something that characterises you. There are things that you said you're going to do, but you've not done. Let our yes be yes, and our no be no. Jesus encourages us in Matthew chapter five, and we also see that they were active, and and their response, what they did, they giving. Paul says is a pleasing offering. Their joy-filled, generous giving was a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice. It was pleasing to God. They weren't really giving to Paul. They were actually giving to God. That's what they were doing. They'd got it. They were giving to God. Paul says it's a, God's delighted with the way you, the way you give. It's expression of your, what God's done in your life, the joy that's flowing in through your life is worked out in giving out. He said, God's pleased with that. He loves it. God's delighted with it. We've got to remember that we're giving to God. What we give, we give to God. I remember years ago, um, and uh, friends of ours uh, were getting married, and uh, they, the families, uh, they didn't have a huge amount of money, and uh, they were, the, the couple were having to pay for their wedding. It wasn't going to be an expensive wedding, but they had to pay for it themselves. And we just felt stood. So we gave them some money. We gave them some money. And they went away on honeymoon, and uh, no one else knew what we did. They're probably, if, they, if you listen online, you probably you won't know who it is. But if anybody does, uh, we've lost our reward in heaven already. For, okay? So uh, when they came back from honeymoon, we found out that... The very amount that we'd given them, they'd put a deposit down on a timeshare and then lost it. And I, my initial reaction was really grumpy. Okay, I was really grumpy inside. And I felt God come and put stomach say, who were you giving to? Who were you giving to? If you're giving to me, it doesn't matter what they do with it. You were giving to me. The sacrifice is pleasing to me. It's not about what they, they did with it. Now, next time, if that situation happened again, I'd probably be a little bit more careful about what I did. I might ask some questions. I might, but it wouldn't stop me giving. Shouldn't stop me giving. Who was I giving to? It's a pleasing offering to God. And the final thing we see, we see this rich generosity, deep contentment, rich generosity. But the, the final thing we see is great faith. You see, overwhelming joy provokes faith. 
And great faith stirs up joy. Paul promises the Philippians that God will meet their needs. Can it be true? Sounds a bit like prosperity teaching. Well, actually, it is true. The biblical principle of sowing and reaping is seen throughout the Bible. It doesn't mean that what you give you, it's not like putting into a slot machine or, and, and, and pulling the lever and, and, and somehow you're going to get back more than you put in. It doesn't work like that. It's not about getting exactly as you've given just so you get exactly the same back. It's not like that. But there is a great, great promise here. And so what this simple verse, verse 19 tells us, it says, it says that our faith should be in God. My God will supply. That's what Rob was making the point you're making. If you were here right at the very opening of the meeting, he said, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The focus is God. It's God is our source. You see, Paul's statement is based on theology, the God who's revealed in the Bible, the God who's the creator, the transcendent God who is awesome, powerful, mighty, and yet is imminent. Imminent means draws near to us, cares about us, loves us. He's a great God and yet cares about us deeply and personally. This is the God who encounters us, who came looking for us when we weren't looking for him. This is the God worthy of our love and trust. Paul encourages us to have faith in God. God will never let us down. He also says that it's based on a promise. My God will supply all your needs. How can Paul make such a rash statement? Was he cynically just trying to get them to give a little bit more? Well, if you, you, know, if you give a bit more, it, God's going to be, it's going to be okay. Just give more. Give us more money. Was Paul the equivalent of someone in a white suit on TV looking to bleed the people dry? Not at all. Not at all. God, Paul knows God never breaks his promises. You see, the key is in verse 15, and this is what Paul says. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. Paul is able to make that promise in verse 19 to the Philippians because he knows that they've learned the biblical principle of sowing and reaping. He knows that they trust God. He knows that they are giving to God. He knows that they've uh, received grace from God and they're living in the grace of God and are freely able to give, joyfully. He knows they've got it. And he knows, therefore, that whatever they give, God will meet their needs because he is no man's debtor. It is the only thing in the Bible where God says, test me in this and see if I won't meet your needs. Paul knows it's based on a promise. And the promise is he's going to provide what they need, not what they want. Jesus tells his disciples to go out without any uh, uh, resources to provide for themselves in Luke chapter 9 and 10. And, and, And Jesus is saying, God will meet your needs along the way. I tell you, I've been walking with God for, since I was 23. I want to tell you, 
He has never let me down. Never let me down. There have been seasons where I've had not a lot, and there's seasons where I've been plenty, and God's been teaching me about being content in those seasons. But I want to tell you that He is faithful and true to His promises. God is not a man that He should lie, God doesn't change His mind. God is more than able to meet our needs and help us, whatever our circumstances. Philippians 4.19 is not a verse to be ripped out of the Bible and stuck on a fridge. It is a conditional promise. These Philippians had understood the principle of sowing and reaping. They had understood that they received grace from God. They knew who they were in God. They knew that God was their provider. And they were filled with joy and able to be generous and rich in generosity. And, and Paul said, I know God's going to look after you. You're going to be okay. I want to tell you, as true as it's true for them, it's true for you. And we receive this promise, Paul finally says, through Christ. You see, God meets our needs not because of anything we do, it's because of what Jesus has done for us. He does it according to his glorious riches in Christ, Jesus. It's always Jesus first. If God will do it for Jesus, he'll do it for you. Because we are his brothers. That's what Jesus calls us, calls us his brothers. You might not feel like close to you. You may feel that you've let him down. You've disappointed him. You may feel that you're far from him. Brother, I'm not much of a brother. I haven't done very well. I've been disappointed. I've been grumpy, miserable, whatever it is. I want to tell you he is still your brother. There is a moment when Jesus comes out of the tomb. He's resurrected from the dead that first Easter Sunday morning and he encounters Mary. He meets Mary in the garden by the tomb. And she doesn't recognize him first of all and then she sees who it is and he just says, Mary, and she knows, oh, it's Jesus. And he goes, she goes to throw herself on him and hold him and he says, no, 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 don't touch me. I haven't yet risen to my father. And he just says this. He says, go and tell my brothers. Go and tell my brothers. I've got something I want you to go and tell them. Go and tell them. And she rushes off. But the point is this. These brothers had betrayed him. These brothers had left him all alone to die on a cross. They'd all run away. Peter had called down curses on himself, saying, I don't know that Jesus. And yet Jesus doesn't look on that. He says, they are my brothers. It's not about what they've done. It's about what I've done for them. When Jesus rose from the dead, you are his. If you've put your trust in Jesus to save you, you're his brother, however well you've done this week. That's good news. And if you don't know Jesus today, if you've come here, maybe the first time, and this is the first time you've been in church, I want to say to you, you can know that is true for yourself. You can encounter the living God and know him. Know that he loves you through what Jesus did on the cross for you. You can give your life to Jesus Christ and encounter these truths that we're talking about. You can know a deep contentment in your soul, whatever's going on in your circumstances. You can learn that secret won't happen overnight, but you can learn it. I tell you, it transforms your life. So, 
Are we content? Have we learned the secret? What's your heart like? Is your heart troubled water? If it is, it's good fishing ground for the devil. You feel in your heart troubled, unsettled, stirred up, all sorts of stuff going on in your heart. God wants to break in this morning. I feel there's people here this morning who've known, you just know. You've, I don't even know what the issues are, but you know your heart is troubled. With joy, are we a little bit grumpy about what we give, whether it be time or money? What's the state of our heart? Do you need to refresh yourself with grace this morning? What are you like as a follower? Are you part of the solution? I tell you, I've been so encouraged by, there's so many people in the church who've, as we've been uh, uh, building this extension along the side, and uh, you know that there's, that there's a bit of a financial gap, and we're, we're, not, we're looking to avoid, if we can, taking a bank loan, but we're, we're not going to take up an offering. And a number of people who, just out of rich generosity, have just come and said, well, I want to be part of the solution. Are you part of the answer? God's challenge is, what are we going to do? Maybe, maybe it is a money issue. Maybe it is about starting to give. Maybe it's about renewing or reviewing what you actually do give. Maybe you're able to do a little bit more than you could. Are you in need? Maybe you come here this morning and you are in great need. Maybe not be financial, maybe all sorts of need. But I want to tell you, God meets our need from his riches in Christ Jesus. And you may feel like, well, I haven't done very well. Well, I want to tell you, he is still your brother. Jesus is your brother. He died for you. It's not about how well you've done. It's about how well he did for you. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 reminds us, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich... Yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. What a wonderful promise. Maybe you don't know Jesus. That can be, you can know that promise for you today. You can know that's true for you. Why should we give? Why should we give to the local church? Bill Hybel says this in his book, Courageous Leadership. This is what he says. Why should we give to the local church? The local church is the hope of the world because it stewards the only message that can impact a person's eternal destiny. Let that sink into your souls. That's why we're part of local church. That's why Tori and Pam came up with this great idea for just, they want to just bless people. They want to show people the love of God. Didn't do it for money. They, didn't, they, they invested a massive amount of time and energy and they did it with great joy because they wanted people to know that there's a God who loves them, a God of grace. That's why they did it. That's why we're here. That's why we're called Hope Church.